to the strange brew podcast my name is jason barnard and that was laurel aitkin and boogie in my bones from 1959 and that's i think the first release from the island label and that's because i'm talking to uh neil story here today who's the editor of one of the most impressive books i've seen in a long while the island book of records and this is the first volume 1959 to 1968 and we're very roughly going chronological so, uh, yeah, a huge welcome, Neil. Thank you. Greetings. So before we go into um, Laurel Aitken and the very early years of Ireland, it's worth just talking about the book itself and the concept because it does seem quite a very large book and it's something that you can open and the artwork, the pictures, the interviews with all the, the main people involved in Ireland, it must have been a real labour of love. It goes back 15, 16 years um, from when I first kind of dreamed up the idea of doing it and then once I dreamed that up 
I let the idea kind of go dormant because I figured somebody else should be doing it and I wasn't really the person to do it. And then, you know, just gradually I started assembling stuff. And then I suppose the real wake-up call was a few years ago, um, very good friend Kelly from Spooky Tooth totally unexpectedly died very, very, very few. I mean, really very few people knew he was unwell, let alone that he was about to die. And just standing there at, at his funeral in Birmingham and looking around and, and just this thought process went through one's mind that if this stuff that people are talking about, because they were the ones who were there, they were the ones who really and truly are the only people who should be talking about the music, the photography, the art, the artwork, what it was like at the record company, all that kind of stuff. They're the only people who were there. So therefore, it's not down to journalists to kind of pontificate about what it was like then. And anyway, so being there and suddenly realising I will never, ever get to sit and talk to Kelly, especially since he was the guy, he told me about what it was like when him, Wimwood, Clapton, and all that lot, if you like, first heard the band's music from Big Pink and how utterly, completely life-changing it was. Oddly enough, about half an hour ago, I was just scrolling through some videos in a sort of random kind of manner, and I came across a performance by the band, and there was Eric Clapton introducing it. I really hadn't, I'd never seen this before. I didn't expect to see it, so it was just literally just happened this afternoon. And he stood there, stood at the microphone and said, ladies and gentlemen, I'd like to introduce you to the band. Music from Big Pink changed my life. And that's really what it was like. So the whole point of it being that you'd never hear that kind of firsthand, I hate the word anecdote because it kind of doesn't really mean what I'm trying to say. But anyway, anecdote, you'd never hear that. And there he was, and there would be no more phone calls. There would be no more Zoom and Skype thingies. There'd be no more sitting inside outside a pub in cold Aston having a pint, just talking about the early days of Spooky Tooth or, you know, all of that kind of stuff. And that was a real, real serious wake-up call. And at that point, I think I really kind of got down to, to work. I've been doing a number of interviews. I've been doing bits and pieces, but I hadn't really, if you like, knuckled down to it. And from then, we've virtually dropped every other project we'd had. The focus has been entirely on this. And so as much as Volume 1 is now done, it's at the printer, we're headfirst into Volume 2. We've got a lot of material for the third volume. Volume 2 goes 69 to 70, which is, if you like, the pink years. And then we go into, if you want to do it by labels, it's the pink rim label. That goes, um, next one after that will be 71, 72. The fourth will be 73 to 75 and so on. And it'll take us all the way up to 1989. And the other point to make is if this isn't done, then it probably never will be. Yeah. Time waits for no man, etc. We started with Lowell Aitken and Boogie in My Bones, the first release on on Ireland. So take us back to 1959, Chris Blackwell. What was going on in that period and the formation of Ireland? Well, it's I have to tell it like he's told it to me, which is that he had a water ski concession at the Half Moon Hotel, which is on the north coast of Jamaica. And his cousin, 
work there, or rather it was his cousin's father who actually owned the hotel. So Chris had the water ski concession, and of an evening, they would have a jazz band, jazz pianist play, and his name was Lance Hayward. And Barbara Cuddy told Chris, you have to come and see this guy because he's really good. I really like him. Come and hang out. So he did. And Chris's background is jazz. That's what he, he used to hang out with Miles Davis in New York. And all those stories are really quite well known. So he saw Lance one evening, undated. I couldn't tell you exactly when. And perhaps he'd had a couple of rums too many. This is how he tells it. But he said at the end of the evening, you know what? I'll really like to record you. So a few weeks go by and nothing has happened. And he goes and goes and sees them again. And after the show, Lance sits him down and starts talking to him and said, okay, so when are we going to do this recording? So Chris, suitably embarrassed, goes, oh, uh, I'll book some time. So he booked some time in a studio at RJR in uh, Kingston. And Barbara drove the band to Kingston, which on the old roads in Jamaica, they're pretty potholy roads even now. And um, there they recorded through the night and they made the first album. That's where the whole thing began. And Chris said at the end of the first song, at the first take, he said that was the moment when I realised this is what I want to do for the rest of my life. And the name for Ireland was there Harry Belafonte reference? The Harry Belafonte reference is, well, there's two references for Ireland because it comes from Ireland and the Sun. Ireland Sun was the war novel, W-A-G-H novel. It was also a film. It was also the title song to the film was Ireland in the Sun, which is Harry Belafonte. So it's whichever, I suppose, you you kind of want to take it from. Personally, I've always taken it as being from the book. Other people say it's taken from the song. Who knows? All of this happened an awful long time ago. I would imagine it's probably a bit of a combination of the two. We're going from uh, around that period with the next uh, single, which is uh, Owen Gray in the Caribs, Please Let Me Go. The Caribs was the name of the musicians that were recording a range of artists around that period, was it? It was all singles. After the first couple of albums, which were the first two Lance Hayward albums, and then there was the Owen Gray record, came out on Ireland in Jamaica, but it didn't come out on Ireland initially in this country. It was licensed to Starlight. But in between times, those are the what we call the, the Jamaican albums before we get onto the English albums. And at that point, everything was based around 45s. So the Owen Gray record is one of the, the very, very, very first 45s. In fact, Owen and CB met up about just under a year ago in London, totally unexpectedly. From time to time, there are, if you like, sort of old people who worked at Ireland kind of get-togethers, and Owen appeared at one of them, much to Chris's complete, you know, he had no idea he was going to be there. And the two of them were inseparable for a while. And at the end, I'd spoken to Owen, and he was as charming as charming can be. And then at the end, he came over and his parting shot was he started singing to me and a colleague of mine. And then he just kind of walked away singing. It was fabulous. Lovely man. Really lovely man. Owen's records were selling in the, the UK in that early period, weren't they? So 
Was that due to the, the Caribbean community coming over to the UK? Well, everything was based upon the, if you like, the early part of the Windrush generation, the Caribbean community, as you call it, coming into the UK. That's where the market was. So Chris, and by this time, David Betridge had become involved. They split London in two. Uh, one had the north half, the other had the southern half, and they literally sold records out of the back of their cars. David had a mini van, and Chris had a mini, a green one, if I remember rightly. Chris gone to school over here? He was schooled at Harrow. He was prep school was on the south coast near Broadspurs. Uh, then he went to Harrow and then he was not expelled. A lot of people seem to think he was expelled. He wasn't. His mother was told by the headmaster that, quote unquote, Chris may enjoy it elsewhere. And so he left. It's 62 when Chris came over. Yeah, uh, he was not there for independence. He came over to the UK just before independence. He could see the changes that were going on. And as he put it, when I spoke to him about it, it was, I think his exact words, my complexion was not correct for the future at that point in Jamaica. 
you know, he was exporting 45s to the UK. They were starting to sell. He was starting to build a, a market. And so that's really where the UK side of things started. There seemed to be quite a number of, of releases that were originally on Sue Records in the States. So there was a bit of a sort of licensing arrangements going on. Well, the Sue thing started with um, Mockingbird, Inez and Charlie Fox, which, oddly enough, was not a hit in the UK. Everybody seems to think it was a huge, huge, huge hit in the UK. It was never a hit in the UK until miles later. In the late 60s. 69, it was a hit. It was like, well, what do you call them nowadays? Turntable hits. It was one of those at that time. All the, all the hip DJs were playing it. All the clubs were playing it. They were on tour with Inez and Charlie were on tour with the Stones. They did Ready, Steady, Go, you know, which was like the TV show of the time. You know, lots of press, blah, 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 blah. Never a hit. But that's how Sue in the UK started. Chris heard the record, literally jumped a plane to New York, found Juggy Murray, who ran Sue, made a deal with him and brought the record back. And that's where Guy Stevens enters the enters the equation, if you like. Guy had a, a key role in, in that period, didn't he? More key than you can adequately describe. He was the person everybody kind of looked towards. He was the tastemaker amongst the cognoscenti, if you like. All the bands at that time, The Who, Pete Townsend wasn't writing at that point, particularly Stones to a degree. Before they all started writing their own songs, they would turn up at Guy's and he would make the equivalent of compilation tapes for them. And that's how Spencer Davis Group were the same. That you know, Steve wasn't really writing at that time. Spencer wasn't particularly, if they were, it was just kind of stuff for B-sides. So that's how some of those songs came about. They all came from Guy and Guy's record collection.
How did Millie Small come to the attention of Chris and Ireland? The original version of, of My Boy Lollipop, which was spelled L-L-Y, pop, at that time, was by Barbie Gay. And when Chris was going on kind of buying sprees to New York, he picked that record up. I think it came out in 1959. He picked that up amongst a whole heap of them. What he would do is he'd put them on a reel-to-reel tape. This is before cassettes and so on and so forth. So he tells it he was playing it one night. He'd heard Millie sing because she was on a number of duet recordings coming out of Jamaica. And he basically thought, ah, I know, that song, the Barbie Gay song, that will work really well. He got Ernest Ranglin in, who was in the UK at that point, to do the arrangement. It came in at just under two minutes, deliberately just under the two-minute mark. And last figures I ever heard was it's seven million and still counting. So how did the arrangement with Fontana work at the time? Fontana arrangement was because Ireland was so tiny that it couldn't compete and very very wisely i'm not sure how many people have actually figured this out but cb certainly did he reckoned that with a song like that as soon as they recorded it he saw hit written all over it but he knew ireland was too small to actually carry the marketing and you know if you're going to sell that many records they were literally hand to mouth they would get X amount of cash in on a, on a Friday, Saturday. Then on the Monday, they'd be done at the pressing plant paying for pressings. You can't do that if you've got a huge hit record. So basically, it was, who do we go to? And there was a guy called Jack Bavistock at Fontana, and he was the guy, and they got a deal. And that's how the Spencer Davis records came out initially on Fontana, because it was the same thing, albeit Spencer didn't start with hits. You know, it took a while before the hits for them came through. A huge hit in the States, and that was under the Smash label in, in the States, wasn't yep. it? My Boy Lollipop. Again, it was licensed. You'd just bankrupt yourself if you try to control all of that. It was only much, much later that Ireland actually had its own, if you like, presence. And again, the same worked in, in Europe, and it was only really in later years when Ireland had its own presence and actually forged really, really long-standing relationships with people in uh, Sonnet in Scandinavia, for example. It can't be understated, the influence, that version of that song, in terms of introducing Blue Beat, Ska, to the UK and the US. I don't think anybody had really heard Ska before then. She had the cutesy voice, which wouldn't last much longer than two minutes. Your ears wouldn't kind of carry it much longer than that, which is why they cut it as short as that. But you're right, it's a bit like Chubby Checker and Do the Twist that introduced that as a dance into the UK. It's exactly the same with with Millie. It went into the mainstream. Scar was around becoming Bluebeat, becoming Rocksteady, etc., etc. That was all around, but it was very kind of club-orientated, home dances, all of that kind of thing. This was this was into the mainstream.
Jackie Edwards, a fantastic songwriter, and we've got his own version of Keep On Running here. But for Jackie and Chris, they knew each other in the very early days of Ireland, didn't they? They did. Jackie was one of the very, very, very first people that Chris recorded and released first. Secondly, he came over not long after Chris did in 62, and Chris stuck with him through thick and thin, and he had more success as a writer than he did actually as a recording artist in his own right. And I think if you actually play any of his the hits for Spencer Davis, people would think his is the cover version. That's the way I would I would hear it. Kids nowadays go, oh, yeah, I know who that is. But actually, they then they hear that and they go, oh, no, don't know that, of course, because it's very, very little known as a song by Jackie. And I don't think people would know that it is actually he was the guy who wrote, or he was the writer, I should say. And Chris Blackwell's role with the Spencer Davis group as well. Was he manager of them? He managed. He saw Spencer Davis for the first time in a pub in Birmingham. It was the night that Millie taped Thank You, Lucky Stars, another TV show, and they had to do that out of Birmingham. It was late in the evening, so they had to stay over. Chris was told about two bands. One was The Move, who he went to see, didn't particularly like, and he passed. And then, again, as he tells it, he walked up the stairs to this first floor of the pub where the Spencer Davis group were playing, and the first thing he heard was Steve singing, and he said it was like Ray Charles on Helium, and it was literally immediate, just like that. Keep on running
we next go to Roycey and uh, the fantastic track Shotgun Wedding. Is this an interesting case of Ireland licensing something over here in the UK? So it's kind of almost flipping something on its head. I guess it was actually, believe it or not, one of the very first Ireland singles I ever bought. I'd no idea what a Shotgun Wedding was. It was being played a bit on the radio, and I thought, that's fantastic. So anyway, I gambled all my pocket money together. And it was around the time, it was 1966, it was just up front of um, World Cup fever. And that's that's when it was a hit. Roy was a great, great soul singer. He's out of Georgia, if I remember rightly. I think it was, again, somebody's going to correct me on this because I'm not looking at notes or anything. I've got a feeling it was the only single that Ireland put out by by Roy. And it got to number six. I mean, it was the first big Island-owned label, Big Hit 45, which is pretty incredible when you think about it. People are standing all around At a shotgun wedding here in this town Shotgun wedding Cause your father got the gun And there ain't no place to run Shotgun wedding And oh yeah What was Chris's ear for music? Who was spotting the... There's him, there's Guy, there's... Those are the two main main people, I guess, at that particular time. David Bettridge is not quite so much because his role was different and obviously within the whole sales side. But in terms of the A&R ear, if you like, it would be Chris and Guy. And, I mean, there was a lot put out that, you know, you kind of think you listen to it now and you think, bloody hell, that's a seminal record. Yeah. That Surely that was a huge hit. The, the, the Robert Parker, Let's Go Baby where the action is. I mean, how on earth at that time was it not a hit? And yet it wasn't. But that was resurrected not very long ago by the Waterboys. Mike Scott was doing that live. 
And it was incredible what the version he did. But that's a B-side of a Robert Parker song, a Robert Parker 45. You really start dissecting it. And there was some utterly incredible music coming. But then the same could be said for other labels like Atlantic, Motown and others. You know, you can make lists as long as your arm, can't you? Yeah, and you, you referenced uh, Robert Parker, that, that single there. It, I mean, an impossible task, really, to pick a selection of, of tracks related to Ireland from that period. Yeah, I mean, I think that in the email exchanges that you and I've had, yeah. each list that we've concocted has been different. Yeah. And I think if we'd had another week or two weeks or three weeks doing it, then you could have kept on changing things around. There's eight, nine tracks that you could easily put in on each different list. I mean, it's a compiler's dream and a compiler's nightmare as a label. I guess that's where the book comes in, because you can just dip into it and bring back memories of a particular track. Well, hopefully it'll bring back memories, but hopefully it'll also, you know, it's meant to be as definitive as, as is humanly possible, firstly. Secondly, it actually gives as much information as we've been, or I've been humanly able to, to compile. So with release dates, they're all accurate titles are accurate the musicians where we've been able to dig in are accurate let's go baby where the action is where the action is put on your wig and your high heel sneakers your new red dress I want you to look the best So let's go baby Where the action is Where the action is They're doing a pony The bony moroni They're doing a jerk You ought to see them work so let's go, baby, where the action is, where the action is. talking earlier about being hard to pick a selection of tracks for this podcast but this is a 
another one that is a pivotal track, and that's Dancing Mood by uh, Delroy Wilson. Uh, oh. Delroy Wilson, a, a child star as well, so he must have been relatively young when... He was. If I recall rightly, he died before he was 50. And again, oddly enough, the other day I was looking at some other stuff of his. I mean, Dancing Mood is just like, it's like everybody's done it, and it's just one of those great records. I don't think that it was any kind of a hit at the time, yet it has lasted the the test of time. It's, he re-recorded it, I know, a number of times, and it's just, buff. Oh, it's just a great record. That's that's all you really need to say about that. I mean, it's it's how do you describe a great record? What were the island the island finances in the minute? It, it seemed like there were a few. They were very reliant on something coming in to to keep them going. It just seemed a bit hand to mouth at times. Well, I can tell you two people who didn't get paid for a while, then got laid off because there was no money in the coffers. One has gone on to manage Robbie Williams and has done fairly well for himself and for a period of time was managing director, and that's Tim Clark. And the other is a guy called Bob Bell, and Bob lives in California now. He is more knowledgeable about Island 45s of this era than anybody on this planet and has been an incredible help in helping me compile the the discography, which is at the back of the 45s and EPs discography, which is at the back of the book. For a period of time, finances were incredibly shaky. And believe it or not, what got them out of the sort of shaky bit after Chris was away with Millie touring the world when she had her big hit was the surprise label. And from the surprise label, you had the Rugby Songs albums. Right. And again, you know, you ask the average person on the street, the big records in the 60s for Ireland, and people would say, oh, maybe Traffic, maybe Jethro Tull, maybe Spooky Tooth. Actually, the biggest records, the biggest selling records were the two Rugby Songs albums, and they sold in the countless thousands. What I didn't know until I spoke to uh, Tom Hayes, who was Director of Business Affairs, he was part of Ireland long before I was. He said he thinks it's the first of the Rugby Songs albums, but that was the first Island gold disc. <laughs> Who'd have thought it? And then I spoke to Chris about it, and I said, what kind of memory have you got about recording the uh, the Rugby Songs album? He said, it was the worst time I've ever had in the studio. I said, oh, really? Why was that? And he said, well, down one end of the studio, you had crates and crates and crates and crates of beer. Then there was a piano player, and then there were all these rugby players who were just drinking themselves insensible. And he said this was at the old Olympic, not Olympic at Barnes, which everybody knows, but this predates. That was the earlier version of Olympic. And I said, what happened? And he well, I got barred. He said, I got banned from Olympic and it was the best studio in London. That's why I hated it. But he said, quote, unquote, it saved our ass. I'm in a dancing 
great LPs from the mid-60s is uh, Club Ska 67 and we've got the Scatterlights Guns of Navarone again a track that stands on its own so that was on the uh, WIRL label so what was the idea of that and what does it stand for? West Indian Records Limited it's WIRL it's still an island album it's a straight UK compilation I mean the most important thing I'd say about that is that if anybody of any age is looking for how do I put a scar compilation together? You put Club Scar 67, you put Club Scar 68. Frankly, the sequencing of it, the everything of it, you cannot get any better than that. And those two together are just incredible as records. And they sold in the countless thousands. That record, whether it's the compilation or, or the track itself, absolutely crucial for the development of two-tone over a decade later. Without a shadow of a doubt, it sat there as a bedrock because that generation, if you like, that two-tone generation, second-generation Windrush, really, they were being brought up with their parents playing records like that. And I was having long conversations with Don Letts about these kind of things, and he said it wasn't. I didn't own it at the time, but he said I came to it. And he said it was stuff out of my parents' record collection. And then a lot of that stuff came out on Trojan. And so it was really the Trojan stuff that the two-tone people in, in Coventry, that's what they were really kind of locking into. But then everything kind of cross-fertilizes because you've got the specials. They're on the road and they're recording with Rico. Yeah. Rico was one of the original trombonists on an awful lot of those records. So everything was kind of coming around in full circle the whole way. But they are, they're extraordinary records, absolutely extraordinary records. I mean, it just seems to me criminal that the Scatellites weren't any more celebrated than they, I suppose maybe they are now, but I still don't think that they were as, they're not heralded in the same way that I think they should be. They're absolute epoch-making stuff. I mean, it's, it's so important. Without them, you wouldn't have a whole heap of music that you have nowadays.
Island Records that known for quite a number of thirsts and we have Nirvana next with Pentecost Hotel from the story of Simon Simapath and that LP. And that was one of the earliest albums that is seen as a concept album. When did things start changing Island so that many of their releases got more into the rock and to a certain extent for a year or two, a bit more psychedelic as well? Well, two or three things with the Nirvana album. That's the first Island Gatefold cover, which marks a step forward. It's the first major, it's not the first Pink album, John Martin was, but that's the first, if you like, major Pink album, Pink label. So the Pink label was introduced around about that point, and that was a shift, and it was a very deliberate shift, because there you had a, a label that for 45s and largely LPs was seen as a, a scar, a rock steady, soul even, label. So a record coming out on something that was pink. That had nothing to do with anything from Jamaica, anything from the Sioux label. It was so totally different. So it reflected that difference. That's the pink part. And I think it was at that time, you look at what else was around and with the Beatles, with the Stones, with everything coming in from the West Coast, you know, from the birds to the, we can list out groups as long as you want. And it was all of this melting pot of of music and people were listening so much and the creatives or the creative forces were so much at that point. It was just this explosion of creativity. You've got studio engineers, Pentecost Hotels, one of the tracks that got a bit like with the Small Faces tracks where they got that phasing effect. The guy who was one of the people who actually put that together was a guy called Brian Humphreys. He was an engineer, worked at Pi, went on to work at uh, at Island. And he started playing around with that as an idea after hours at Pi. Not being paid at the time. He wasn't being doing overtime. He just decided, I wonder if I do this and if I do that and I put these two machines together and I have one act slightly out of sync, what will it sound like? That's how that came back. Strange fire dot of pain 
Now we go to traffic, no face, no name and no number from the Mr. Fantasy album. And interesting that Stevie Winwood and the newly formed traffic found a home at Ireland. Was it two things? One of which Ireland now was substantial enough that they could hold a, a major act. And then also the fact they weren't big enough, they could be agile and could take risks. I think that the latter is more to the point because don't forget when traffic formed, they went and did nothing for X amount of months. Well, I said they went and did nothing. They disappeared into the back end of Berkshire and nobody really heard very much about them. There were a handful of interviews. Nobody really knew who was in the group at that time. Spencer was just coming off the back of two number ones and a number two 45. So it was, if anything, it was Steve taking the risk, forming a group with Jim and with with Woody, who were friends, and then, you know, Dave Mason was there as well. So in a sense, it wasn't really that everybody was expecting them to be huge to begin with. It took time, and I think the reason that it worked for them was they were allowed to develop at their own pace as opposed to being part of that almost kind of manufactured era. Because what you're doing now is you're straddling the a hit, or rather a 45 release every six, eight weeks, package tours and all the rest of it, and then you're getting into albums which become the primary vehicle as opposed to 45s, and then you put in three or four filler tracks, and that makes an album. So in other words, going back to the Nirvana record, that was an album in toto. Mr. Fantasy as an album is exactly that. It's an album in toto. I could have picked probably six tracks off of Mr. Fantasy, and yeah, No Faces. Frankly, it's about as good as as you can get. For me personally, it was it was just a mind boggling thing hearing that for the first time. I first started it in mono, so "Heaven Is in Your Mind," which is the opening track, sounds very different to the stereo version. And in the book, we've really lucked out here because traffic, the cottage in Berkshire, was an integral part of the island story. Traffic. And in a sense, the cottage are the first kind of cornerstone, if you like, of the whole label. You know, Steve's importance should never, ever, ever be underestimated in terms of Ireland per se. The other cornerstones, Cat Stevens, obviously, Bob Marley, obviously, U2 is the fourth. So if you take it at that, it's at that level. That's how important traffic were. So what we've done with this is in deference to the fact that it is as important as an era as that, John Benton Harris shot the first ever pictures at the cottage. We lucked out by John agreeing that we could use a number of his pictures, which have never, ever been seen. And he had very, very, very good recollections of shooting them, what it was like, and partly how easy, how good they were to get along with and so on and so forth. But some of those pictures are extraordinary and they've never been printed before. So we are incredibly lucky to have things like that.
bookend the era and we bookend the podcast with our final track Jeffrey Tull a song for Jeffrey from their uh, This Was album and yep. I've read in, in the book that it was actually Gary Wright who mentioned this funny band to uh, Chris Blackwell Chris had this thing that everybody would go in you go in on a Friday Friday was wages day so you'd go in and all the bands would go in and uh, at whatever time it was um, because you know think about it if you look at all the ads in music papers People were actually playing Thursday, Friday, Saturdays. They were playing weekends, not so much, you know, Mondays and Tuesdays. So Friday was a good day, and that became Wages Day. And he had a thing with everybody, not just the Spookies, but he had a thing with everybody, that if you see somebody that you really like, because, you know, it's impossible to be have your ears and eyes in all four corners of Britain. It was either Kelly or it was Gary or maybe a combination of the pair of them who said, we saw this bloke and he stands on one leg playing the flute and he's pretty good. And I remember, again, Chris saying, you know what, that sounds really interesting. I think I'll go and have a, have a look-see. And that's how it started with, with Tull. And they were managed by Terry Ellis and Chris Wright. It was Terry who actually did all the work with Tull and therefore he was the one who was that part of of Chrysalis with Ireland at that point. It only came later that Chris Wright became more involved because at that point he was looking after 10 years after, who at that point was signed to uh, DRAM. And Tull, you had to see to believe. I mean, again, there was literally nothing like it. There really, really wasn't. And I think Ian would say at that point he already wasn't the greatest flautist known to man, but as a live act, they were incredible. I talked to Dick Polak, and Dick took 
some exceptional pictures. He did a lot, a lot with traffic, but Dick did a huge amount with Tull in the very, very early days. He said, can you imagine what it was like? There you are, you're in the pit and you're looking up and this guy's on one leg he's, and it's sort of tucked up, right tucked high up and he's playing the flute and he's kind of balancing and he looks like a sort of a flamingo kind of gone wrong. But he said, musically, they were just in your face and it just didn't stop. They were so exciting. And I don't know that necessarily that excitement of Tull at that time translated into the records they made. I'm, but this is just me personally. It kind of did. And I remember hearing Song for Jeffrey initially and going, whoa, what is this? This is extraordinary stuff. But I think live, it, it was a different thing entirely. And it's a little bit like traffic in the studio were as good as they were when and I know this is not within volume one, but when we get to the second one and you have Last Exit, which was the album that came out when Steve went off with Blind Faith, and that was half live. And you listen to the second side of that record, that was traffic as unadorned, but just out there making the music they made. Well, Neil, we've only just skirted the surface of Ireland records from 1959 to 1968, but that's why everyone should go and get themselves a copy of the first volume of the Ireland Book of Records. And I've been looking at your website as well, which is uh, you can get a lot of information about the book there, theislandbookofrecords.com. I look forward to uh, seeing uh, the second volume and maybe we can link up again for that one as well. Well, I'd love to link up again. It's been brilliant talking. And I would also very much like to get into this whole choose your top 10 from the next two years, 69 to 70, because believe you me, we'll be going around and around the houses on that one for as long as you like. Okay, sir. Good talking. Bye-bye. Speak soon.
where I'm going. Don't cease to see where I'm going to. I don't want to. Thank you for listening to the Strange Brew podcast. If you do like the show, please consider a small donation to help keep the show archive online. It's 10 years since I started the podcast and hosting fees are increasing over time. All your support keeps the show running and helps me get amazing guests. To support me, just go to thestrangebrew.co.uk where you'll see a donate button on the homepage. Thank you very much. Plus, any reviews on your podcast services help to spread the word too. Thank you.